You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of the Treasure Island Baseball Network. Behind every memorable moment and career highlight on the diamond. And the Twins are baseball's world champions. The Twins go to the seventh game. Catch them all, Kirby Puckett. Gone! A walk-off for Sano! And the Twins win it! Are the true gems. The inside stories and tales. I remember the beginning of that season in 1997. I was sleeping in a car in a parking lot. I was broke, and I was thinking about quitting. I'm looking at it, reading it, and I'm like, this dude messed up my ball. Like, my first home run ball, he just totally messed it up. That's probably one of my favorite plays of my career, just considering in the stadium, um, you know, game's over, he scores. And it, was, it was a pretty cool moment. And you will find those candid, casual conversations here on the Twins Clubhouse Podcast. Now, here's Chris Atterbury. Well, hello, and once again, welcome to the Twins Clubhouse. And you can hear some new voices there on our refurbished billboard. Tori Hunter, Michael Kadire, Joe Maurer. Last week, the great Jim Cott joined us inside the Twins Clubhouse. And today, we swing open the doors for another Twins legend, and that is Mr. Randy Bush, part of a, a very select community of players who can boast not one, but two Minnesota Twins World Series rings. He's added another ring with the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and Randy Bush, it is a, a great pleasure to welcome you in uh, during this uh, crazy time uh, to, to revisit a little of your Minnesota Twins history. How are you and how's your family? Uh, doing great, Chris. Great to be with you. Great to be introduced as a Twins legend. I don't know that I've ever heard that before, but that's awesome, and uh, I appreciate it. We're we're doing fine. We're uh, staying safe and doing what we're supposed to do and hoping we can get back to some baseball sometime soon. I, I got to quibble with you on the legend thing. I mean, you're one of seven players who was on both the World Series championship teams. You're the Twins' all-time leader in pinch hits with 74. I mean, how could you not be a Twins legend with, with those credentials? <laughs> well thank you i appreciate it it's uh it's always fun to to uh reminisce back to the the playing days and i i think one thing that's always helped me is uh is because i was on some really good teams that's kind of uh made people think i was a better player than i actually was so thank you <laughs> We're going to debunk that because you were a very good player and you were a second-round pick for the Twins out of New Orleans. Uh, you went straight to Double A Orlando, and then you split the next year between Double A AA and Triple A. But I want to start our conversation, Randy, in 1981 in Orlando. You had a, a monster year, 22 homers. You drove in 94. You walked 85 times. You're kind of a, ahead of your time in that regard. Was 1981 at Double A Orlando – was it something clicking for you as a professional? I think you were 22 that year, or were you just sick and tired of the Southern League? <laughs> well, I think it was a combination of things, but um, certainly it was a very important point for me. Um, like, as you said, I had signed a year and a half earlier and um, kind of floundered around between AA and AAA, maybe had started a little more advanced than maybe I was prepared for coming right out of college. And uh, I knew that that would be a big year. Um, Tom Kelly was our manager and I had great faith in him and, and uh, had already um, established a real good rapport with him from playing in an instructional league with him. And um, I just, I felt like I was in a good place and that I would, I needed to have a good year and I was ready to have a good year. And we had an 
awesome team that was just a lot of fun to be a part of. Well, and some of the guys on that squad, Gary Gaetti hits 30 bombs that year. Uh, Timmy Laudner hits 42. I think that was the franchise record. I think it still is the franchise record down there. Uh, and Scotty Olger hit 20 home runs. Tim Tuffle hit 17 home runs. You had a 21-year-old left-hander, Frank Viola, uh, on the mound that year. Quite a group, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me because, Randy, when you came up as part of that 82 group that is still uh, revered here in Twins territory, um, the start of change in Twins territory. I mean, a lot of those bonds were forged on the hot, hot, sticky Southern League fields uh, with guys like you and, and Tim and Gary. They really were. We, um, you know, we we kind of um, grew together there. And like I said, we had a really, really talented team. We, we won the league that year. Uh, Tom Kelly was tremendous and uh, gave us a lot of freedom to, uh, you know, to grow as players and as young guys just trying to figure out what we were doing. And, and a lot of those um, remembrances of those things that you share together along the way are, are things that uh, that bond you together during the tough times when you do get to the big leagues and you, you trust each other and you work hard together. And it was really, really fun um, to share a lot of memories with those guys. And it, some of the best times that we talk about are back when we were in the Southern League there and, uh, before we even got to the big league. So it, it was a special time and uh, something that uh, that I really enjoy reflecting back on. Well, let's reflect on your big league debut because 1982 comes and you're part of a wave of fresh faces uh, in Minnesota. Fittingly enough, your first three appearances in the big leagues were as a pinch hitter, uh, and you would go on to excel in that role for so many years. Do you remember who you faced in your first at bat? Oh, I do. Absolutely. It was Raleigh fingers and it was a, <laughs> it was a pinch hit appearance. I think we were down a run game on the line and, and uh, he actually fell behind two and O and he gave me a pitch to hit two and O and I fouled it back. And then he went to work and just carved me up and punched me out. And, uh, but I'll never forget that. I mean, uh, that was uh, a heck of a spot. He was already uh, established and well on his way to being a hall of famer. So, uh, that was uh, a memorable debut for me, even though yeah. it didn't end quite the way I wanted it to. Yeah, why not jump into the deep end of the pool? Uh, and and, <laughs> and you you allude to to facing him cold off the bench, and we've talked with guys through the years about just how difficult a task it is to come off the bench late. And most of the guys I talk to say that you're always facing the other team's best guy, and it's always a big situation. And it's the hitting equivalent of having to be a closer to come in and get three, four, and five with runners on it at second and third. You also didn't have in 1982 the luxury of spending four innings in the cage or in a virtual reality simulator or studying frame-by-frame video or, or, or whatnot. How has that, that aspect of the game changed throughout your span in the game of baseball? Yeah, I think um, I, I just think that I recognized early on that that this was going to be a role that um, that I would probably be called on to fill in my career if I was going to have a major league career. That I that it was something that I was going to need to to be good at, and so I kind of looked at it as a challenge. That, like you said, you're going to be facing uh, the top reliever on the other team, the closer in most situations, and in a tough spot. And, and so I kind of embraced it early on and I think that helped. And, and you're right that I, I think the recognition of the difficulty of that role has evolved over the years. And, 
and uh, people recognize that you have to have the right mindset and you know ball clubs are put together now with the idea that you'd love to have a guy on the bench who can who can fill that role and and be good at it and it has gotten a lot different in terms of the ability to prepare for it. guys have cages now behind the behind the dugout and you can go in and and swing and and be loose and walk right up to the plate and and feel like you can take your ace swing. I, I I can remember feeling like at the Metrodome, you know, we didn't even we didn't even have a cave. We didn't have anything. I can remember feeling like the first swing or two were just to get loose, and, <laughs> and then you go to work after you had two strikes. So it was a lot different, and it certainly changed over time. Well, you get your first hit about a week later, and again, flair for the dramatic. Why not make it at Fenway Park, right? That's right. That's right. I think that was Mike Torres. And um, playing at Fenway Park, and uh, the the thing I remember um, most about that has nothing to do with getting a hit. It's that um, I played left field um, nine innings. We won the game three to two, and I never touched a ball the entire <laughs> game playing left field at Fenway Park. And and I I like to tell people early in the game I was thinking come on, hit me one, hit me one. And by the ninth inning, I was saying, not now, not now. <laughs> and somehow, uh, somehow the, the ball never fouled me for nine innings and we won the game three to two. And, uh, and that was fun to, fun to remember. Yeah, and you won because uh, after your first career base hit, Gary Gaetti hits one out of the yard and, uh, and that was the difference in the ball game. You get your first major league home run, fittingly, coming off the bench. And you're going to have to do some archaeology work on this one for me. Uh, it was September 6th of 82. It was at Texas. Gary Ward had a big day, two for three. He, he tripled in his last at bat. And then in comes Randy Bush to hit his first big league home run. Did, did Wardo get hurt or was there a matchup situation? What, what do you recall about that? I don't remember that. I just, I remember, uh, that it was Charlie Huff and, you know, Charlie threw predominantly knuckleballs and he fell behind in the count and, and threw me a fastball and I hit a home run. And when I got back to the dugout, the, the guys were saying, you know, how'd you know he was going to throw you a fastball? And I, you know, being a, just a young, dumb rookie, I said, well, what do you mean? I was ahead in the count. So I looked fastball and <laughs> <laughs> and which was made no sense because he always threw knuckleballs. But so I just kind of uh, lucked into that one as a as a young rookie trying to figure out what he was doing. I'd say that was textbook how you hit the knuckleball. You just <laughs> you wait for him to not throw hit it. Something else. Yeah, hit, yeah. hit a different pitch. Exactly. Well, earlier earlier this year, Randy, uh, prior to to the suspension of of spring training, um, I, I did an interview with an author, Brad Bellucci, and his book is called The Wax Pack. It's a bestseller right now. And we use it during rain delays and whatnot. And Brad is a, a younger guy. And what he did was he opened up a pack of 1986 Topps cards. And then he traveled around and visited with all the players that he found in the pack. And and kind of wrote about it. And there were some names people would, would, would recognize. Guys like Doc Gooden, Carlton Fisk. But a lot of the guys were predominantly kind of grinder type players. And it's a really cool read. There was one player he didn't get in the pack that he really, really wanted to get. I'm going to share part of our interview with, with you on that note. Here's Brad Baluchian from the Wax Pack. My childhood, where I had thousands of 1986-87 Topps cards that I would spend so much time with, you know, it's sort of like my baseball cards were like 
the iPhone of that time, right? That's where I'm always looking at my cars and organizing them. My favorite Minnesota twin from that era was Randy Bush. In those 87, 91 teams, Herbeck and Puckett. And I mean, nationally, as a kid growing up, you know, I knew all those names. But really, to me, it, you know, if there was one twin who I'd wish had been in the pack, it would have been Randy Bush. How about that? A kid in Rhode Island, uh, and you superseded Herbie and, and Puck and, and everybody else to, to be his favorite twin uh, of, of the era. He said he, he just loved the way you were a constant. He, he said that from afar as a kid uh, that you seemed like the ultimate glue guy for very good teams. It seems like a pretty good compliment. Well, it's a great compliment. Wow, what an honor. I mean, um, you know, he – Got a lot of great players he could pick from there on those on those twins teams and a lot of great guys and uh, yeah that's really an honor and and I'm appreciative of that very much so uh, again I I, I think uh, I think a lot of twins fans um, think warmly of my years there and and a lot of it is being associated with two world championship teams and uh, when you look back at your career certainly uh, we do the same thing you gravitate towards those years where where you had the, you were part of a successful team like that, and those are the years that you remember, and those are the, the teammates that you remember. Well, he didn't get your card, but we can look at the back of your card and kind of go through some of the seminal moments as Randy Bush joins us here on the Twins Clubhouse. And you mentioned the good times, but it wasn't without struggle. Uh, in 1986, you guys, after coming up in 82, flashing a little bit, struggled 71 and 91 ray miller was fired tom kelly took over uh and here was burt blylevin who by my estimation was 417 years old when he said these words at the end of the 1986 season you know it was a frustrating year for us i'm representing the players we had a lot of players that had great individual years i was very fortunate in 1979 to play on a world championship club and i know what it takes to win and if we can, going into next season, get together as a unit and 25 guys having the best years we're capable of having, hopefully we can bring a World Series to Minnesota. So, Bert playing a little Karnak there in 1986. Did you guys all share that sentiment? I mean, it's easy to say you did, but in reality, did you guys all look at the end of that year and say, you know what, we, we can be a championship club? Well, I, I think we felt like like we were more talented than we were showing and that, that, that it just hadn't come together. And when Tom Kelly took over for that last month, he really challenged us. And, it, he, you know, Tom's a very, very direct, straight, straight shooter, and he laid it out there. He said, look, when, when he got the job, he said, look, we, you can continue to do things the way you've been doing it, and there'll be somebody else sitting in my chair next year. Or you can, uh, you know, we can start paying attention to detail and playing the game the way I've seen you guys play it. I, I know all you guys, and uh, I think I think he really hit the right chord. And I think Andy McPhail made one of the best decisions that he's ever made in his executive career, and decided to, you know, to keep a very young young manager in Tom Kelly and, and give him the opportunity the next year. And, and he did know us all really well, and we, we had great confidence in his leadership, and you know we believed that, that we could play for him and that, that he would put the right emphasis on the right things. And so I, I don't know that uh, you know that we had quite thought of it in the way that 
you know, Bert articulated it, but we really did believe that, that we could be a lot better than we had been. And, and we're really excited when Tom Kelly was named manager, the full-time manager then going into the following year. And, and we made some key acquisitions in that off season and, and things fell into place for us. Yeah, and again, it goes back to, I, I would guess, the faith in TK that you guys developed on those hot, sticky minor league diamonds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when you're in the minor leagues and especially in the Southern League, long bus trips, and you spend a lot of time together and, and you really learn to to trust each other. And uh, we had we we played hard, we worked hard, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And and as I said earlier, we were really, really talented group. And so we had that that same group of guys now in the big leagues and had gained some experience now for a few years. And it really it really was time for us to to know how to win and and to go out there and and step forward and do that. And a big part of uh, what we talk about learning how to win close games is is stealing games late and in 1987 16 walk-off wins one shy of the all-time record and you were part of one you didn't get the winning hit but you set it up let's go to june 19th of 1987. there's the set by win and the pitch swing and a drive hit out into left center field boston hustling after can't get it drops in for a hit herbeck has scored Smalley is coming home, and the Twins take the lead. Six to five on a two-run pinch hit single by Randy Bush. And that's a game that eventually you won on Tim Laudner's walk-off home run when he hit in your spot after a double switch with Al Newman and Sal Butera involved in all of that. And the reason I bring it up is it, it took all of you that year. And, and in that one little spot in the lineup, you got four or five different guys all lending a hand at what they do best to make it, to make the whole recipe work. Well, and I, I didn't know we won that many games in our last at bat. That that's a great stat. Um, but I, I will say that Tom Kelly was a master at using the entire roster. And he had a philosophy that if you were going to win, you needed everybody on the roster to do that. That was uh, not exactly the norm in baseball at that time. There were a lot of teams that believed that you just play your nine guys and that's it. And uh, he believed that if, if you were going to expect somebody to come off the bench and get a pinch hit, then, then you better have used them and let them play some to, to stay sharp. And I know that that was huge for my career and huge for a lot of guys on our roster. But we did have a feeling that – that um, in addition to the superstar lineup that some of the guys we had in the lineup that were just tremendous that the rest of us had a role and it made us feel like like we had something to contribute when we were called upon well and it certainly played out that way and you did have superstars as well and let's go to august 30th of 1987 in milwaukee some will refer to it as the randy bush pinch hit comebacker to chuck crim game others will refer to it as the kirby puckett game (laughs) Well hit. Way back. Oh, touch them all, Kirby Puckett. What a game. And he has 10 hits in his last 11 bats. Oh, six for six for Kirby Puckett. Phenomenal. 
Yeah, Gordo couldn't even believe it. Six for six, two doubles, two homers, four scored. Uh, he would have scored more, but you stranded him there after a lead double in the six. He drove in four, and it's fair to say, Randy, that that is one of the iconic single-game performances in Twins history. You had a front-row seat. What do you remember about that day? Could you feel it building to that moment? He was he was just such a tremendous player, and you, you just never wanted to miss an at-bat that he was having because you just never knew what he was going to do. And, yeah, that day – the. In fact, the two days in a row where he went 10 for 11, mm-hmm. it was it was just unbelievable. He was locked in. Uh, no matter what you threw him, he smashed it. And uh, uh, one of the two days, he, I, I think he ended it with or, or his last at bat was a home run off act, their closer, um, to put us ahead. So it, it was just unbelievable uh, to see him, you know, have a weekend like that. Uh, it was always fun to go to Milwaukee. We always liked playing there in, in County Stadium and. And I'll never forget Puck having that incredible weekend. It was it was really something to watch. Now, did you ever pull him aside though and say, "Look, Kirby, I know it was a big day, but I actually drove an eight in one game, so you're halfway there." <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your eight RBI game. Yeah, that was uh, that was crazy. That was in Texas, and um, um, it kind of you know started off. Uh, more inauspiciously, but I think I, I hit like a three run homer in my last two at bats and, and ended up with eight RBIs, which um, at that time uh, I think tied a, a twins record and, and stayed that way for a long time. But yeah, it was fun. It was that anytime you have that kind of a day, it's, it's something that you, you certainly look back upon fondly. Well, 87 obviously is a, is a year that gets looked back fondly in a lot of different ways. And, and you get through the ALCS, you have that incredible moment at the Metrodome, uh, and then the World Series. And in the World Series, you, you, you pinch hit in several games. You started in game two, and you had a big hit, a two-run double off Danny Cox. That made it a 3 nothing lead. But this game and your performance in that World Series, Randy, will never be remembered for your bat. It's always going to be remembered for your slide. I think we have Harmon Killebrew talking about one of the famous slides in Minnesota Twins history. Crowd going absolutely wild here as the Twins lead 5 to nothing. Uh, Randy Bush did a good job of sliding at home place. It was one of those head first slides. He slid away from the infield side and just caught home plate with his left hand. Had he got in feet first, Tony Pena might have been able to block the plate and he'd have been out. But a good slide by Randy Bush. Again, that was off a a Laudner RBI single. Two teammates who came up in the same draft class uh, and moved through the system together. But in this day and age, Randy, and you see it all the time uh, in your position in the Cubs front office, with no more collisions really at home plate, the head first slide, we see it all the time at home. But at that point in time, that just wasn't done. That was an invitation to injury. Uh, what was going through your mind as you came chugging around third base? Yeah, yeah. The, I, well, I, I just needed to score. That's all I was thinking was I needed to get there, and it was a reaction where where he went to the inside to, to field the throw, and so I just jumped to the outside and tried to figure out a way to, you know, to get to the plate and touch it. And I will say that um, that, that was captured – uh, was captured on film and, and photography and stuff where, um, you know, at that time, then yeah, I had really had no idea what, what all the buzz was about with that. I don't think any of us did until after the game where we, we started seeing the replays and, 
just how well that had been captured on film. So it was fun, but it was just a reaction. I think a lot of us, we played the game and we just tried to, to figure out a way to win, tried to figure out a way to, to score a run. And, and that was a reaction in the moment, the best way to try to, to get to the plate. <laughs> now there are some phenomenal shots of it in videos. Do you have one? Do you have a, a framed up shot of that somewhere in your home? I do. I do. And I have a framed up shot of it. And, and Gaetti is in the, in the background telling me to slide. And it's a, it, it, it's a fame favorite, uh, photo memory that i have um, in my office <laughs> well my partner danny of course has the, the the shot of him in the collision at home plate with uh, the catcher doing a headstand but do you ever remind him that you were safe and he was out <laughs> <laughs> well danny's a perfect example of what i just said danny danny was a guy who who played really hard played really smart and was going to try to figure out a way to win the game. And that's that. I think we had a lot of guys on the team who, who fit that mold, who just said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to do what it takes and figure out, figure out a way to score the run, win the game. And uh, Danny was a perfect example of that. Well, let's fast forward now to, to 1991. Randy Bush, kind enough to join us here in the Twins Clubhouse, and we're pleased to have you with us all across our network, and whether you're podcasting this, wherever you pick up your Twins podcast. It's June of 91, and you guys are, are, are rolling right along. You've, you've won three in a row, and you a hit for Shane Mack in the bottom of the 10th inning against Greg Olson. You remember what happens here? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, let's take a listen. <laughs> <No>. then. <laughs> Olsen to the set. Here's the pitch to Bush. Swing and a fly ball hit out of the shallow right field. It's going to fall in for a base hit. Munoz around third. He scores and the Twins win. One of your 74 pinch hits, still a Twins record. One of two walk-off hits for you in your career. You talk about it at the front end. You're going to face closers. You're going to face their best guys. And you're going to do it in big spots. And, boy, you came through in that one, which turned out to be win number four in what would become what is still a franchise record, 15 consecutive Twins wins. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, – I just remember we were we were rolling. We were playing so good during that streak. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we really, really believed we were going to win every night. And, uh, and when we did finally lose it, again, you remember things. And I remember Tom Kelly telling us, you know, how important it is now that, you know, you lost a game. Okay, now we got to get back and, and not let – let us start going the wrong way and, and we just kept winning and um, uh, yeah those, those that was fun to be a part of to be on a ball club that got that red hot yeah I believe that was the loss was the game where TK still says he kicks himself for I, I want to say he swapped pitchers like he 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 changed pitchers and he still kicks himself for it later because he never did that and he didn't and he didn't go with his gut and he still to this day as only TK could could phrase it uh, has regrets about about how that one ended. He felt he that one was on was on him, uh, but so many of the good things were on him as well. Let's go to August twenty second of nineteen ninety one. You're playing Seattle and you're down four one, going into the bottom of the ninth inning. A couple of guys get on and here comes Randy Bush. Swung on a well hit ball to right, way back, going, going. That game is tied. Randy Bush with a three run homer. The game is tied at four. I guess you didn't you didn't want to go home. <laughs> well, what, what I remember about that is uh, Terry Crowley, who was our new hitting coach that year, who I loved, um, 
tremendous hitting coach, tremendous person. But he, he was standing next to me and he said, you know, if we get two guys, he wants to wait and, and use you when we get two guys on and, you know, you can let it air out and see what happens. And, and sure enough, we got two guys on and, um, boy, that was just one of those ones where I, I never, I never tried to hit a home run, but what I would try to do is pull the ball in those type of situations and just figure, you know, if I got a piece of it and it got in the air, it could go out. And that was one where it worked out and tied the game up in the ninth. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Mike Schooler was the guy who threw the pitch, and he was still on the mound an inning later when Scott Leyes walked it off as that 91 team uh, was a juggernaut and, and rolled on into the postseason, and obviously you captured your second World Series championship there uh, with the Twins. Your teammate that year, and a guy who put in quite a performance on the mound in the final game of that World Series, Mr. Jack Morris, uh, I don't know if you realize, your most home runs you ever hit, in the big leagues off one guy and the most hits off one guy all off Mr. Morris. <laughs> oh, and I remind him of that. every chance I get. <laughs> So you yeah. did know that. <laughs> oh yeah. I knew, I, well, I, I knew the home run part. And, um, and so I would remember, and it really irritated Jack and Jack is <laughs> such an awesome competitor, obviously, <laughs> as we all know with the, you know, the greatest game seven performance ever. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it would it would st- if you told him that today, it would still irritate him just to to, uh, to have to hear that. But I love Jack and love everything that he did for us, and uh, and I certainly would give him the needle every now and then and let him know that. As well, you should. As well, you should. Now, I I want to keep that game seven in mind because you forge a, a post playing career. You you coached at your alma mater for a while at New Orleans, and then you joined the front office of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and you are still in the front office of the Chicago Cubs as a vital member of the organization and a guy who helped build a team that snapped the curse in Chicago with another memorable Game 7. What was that Game 7 like, being in the executive box, watching this team you've put together in an amazing environment in Cleveland, the, the rain delay at the end and the home run that they hit onto the porch and left? What was that Game 7 like to be a part of, not in spikes, but to be very much a, a fundamental part of years later? Yeah, it was surreal. It, it was uh, the, uh, the roller coaster of emotions when, when you're watching the game sitting in the stands is so different than being in the dugout. And in the dugout, there's a, there's a, a constant positive vibe where as teammates, you believe you're going to figure out a way to you know, to get the job done and, and get it in the win column. And you're so absorbed with your role and being prepared for what you might be asked to do on a given day. You're so you're concentrating, you're, you're positive. You're, but when you're an executive and you're sitting in the stands, your, your emotions, uh, you know, you have zero control. And so it's, it's a roller coaster. You, you know, we're up early in the game and it, Oh my God, we're going to, we're going to break this curse and we're going to win the world series. And, and, um, and then they come back and tie it. And it, it was deafening in Cleveland. I mean, it was absolutely deafening and uh, you couldn't, you couldn't even hear yourself think. And it was, Oh my God, we just, you know, we just let the lead get away in game seven of the world series. This is awful. And then there's the rain delay and more time to think and more time to, and when that thing finally ended, it was it was such a, a release of emotion. Uh, you know, I, I felt like in my career, 
you know, I've been unbelievably blessed to, to be a part of, of, uh, you know, the twins winning in 87 and then, and then the Cubs winning in 2016. And in both cases, you know, cities that, uh, that had not experienced that before. So it was pretty spectacular to have, have been a part of it, uh, as a player and then also to have been a part of it as an executive just what a thrill well randy you've carved out an amazing track record in the front office with the cubs you've ridden through ridden through a couple of different regimes and obviously the world series will always be a feather in your cap not unlikely when you quit playing that a guy as respected as you were with your playing career would end up in a front office these days though different right there there are far fewer guys who took your path to a front office uh, than there were in years past, and whether that's good, bad, or indifferent doesn't matter. That's just kind of the way it is. Have you seen a change in how that job is is done and the demands of the job in your lengthy period in the front office? Yeah, I think that um, a, a lot of that has to do with um, a lot of the the salaries that guys earn during their player playing careers mm-hmm. um, in more recent years and. And, uh, the, you know, the, the work that's required to be in the front office, uh, in baseball, it's year round and, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of hours. And I just think that a lot of guys, uh, who have made, made some money as a player, they don't want to make that commitment. And, uh, um, uh, there's other things that they can do. I, I, I do see, uh, players coming back in player development because they enjoy that part of it. And again, it's a, it's a shorter work season. You at least have an off season still where you have some time off and that's not the case in the front office. So I think those are all, all a part of it. And uh, who knows with, uh, with what we're going through now, uh, how that's going to change the industry also. And, and uh, you know, what career paths will be out there for guys. Uh, once we do get back to back to playing some baseball, which we all hope is, is sooner rather than later. That's for sure. Yeah, no question about that. And and your point is echoed by Jim Cott. He, I asked him once how he didn't end up as a pitching coach for years and years and years. He was briefly one with the Reds and a very good one. And he said that it got to the point where if you wanted to stay in the game, you could make more money being on TV and not having to be accountable for wins and losses than you could grind in a way working. I, I remember when Tom Brunanski wanted to get back into coaching. He went back to the GCL. Uh, you know, and worked his way all the way back up, and none of that is is glorious or glamorous or or easy on a on a player or or on their family. But uh, obviously, you've had a very rewarding run of it. Did you foresee that? Was that something you had an eye on as you wrapped up your playing career? I really did not. I I knew that um, that I wanted to stay in baseball, and that um, that that would be a lot, mean a lot to me if I could do that. I think one of the best decisions I made was when, when my career ended, uh, I immediately uh, went back to college and um, took a year and a half to to finish my degree in finance. And, you know, that accomplished a couple of things. Number one, I needed that degree. That, that's been very important in my life. But number two, it allowed me to take some time to figure out what the next step was and not rush into doing something that might have been a mistake. So... I think that was a really important decision and and something that helped me throughout my life. Yeah, and obviously a whole different set of challenges in a front office as opposed to being in uniform in the dugout. Uh, equally challenging, but just I guess they take different shapes. Uh, do you still get that competitive juices? Do you get what you need in terms of your life as a competitor out of the work you do in the front office? 
I definitely do. And, uh, but I love the fact that, um, that in my role, I can go into the clubhouse. I can, you know, have good banter, talk to Chris Bryan, Anthony Rizzo, all the guys and, and feel very comfortable, um, go into the dugout, talk with those guys, share time with the manager, whatever the case may be. But so that helps just to, just to be close to it and be around it. Uh, I think we're all lucky to be in baseball in any capacity. And I'm thrilled every day to be a part of it. And, you know, we've all been missing it right now and uh, looking forward to getting back at it. But that's one of the things that we all really enjoy is, is being able to be down there close and personal with the players. God, unquestionably the best part of the job has to be, and you, you said it, we are all very fortunate to, to do this for our living, is the, the relationships and the chance to, to share the conversations and the stories and uh, the experiences. And we appreciate you, Randy, sharing some of yours with us today. It was great catching up with you uh, and going back through kind of some of these moments. Did we miss anything? Did we miss any great <laughs> Randy Bush moments that, that you would have wanted to talk about today? You missed uh... – you missed a lot of the outs and the, the strikeouts and the, the grounded into double plays, but I appreciate you skipping right over those and going right to the highlights. I'm pretty sure those didn't even happen. I'm pretty sure that you're just uh, you're misremembering uh, all of those. Uh, Randy, great to talk with you. Uh, glad that you and your family are doing well. Uh, and if and when we get this thing rolling again and maybe this becomes a, a – a regional thing maybe we just get to see your cubs on the uh, on the diamond here before it's all said and done this summer wouldn't that be fun that would be great look forward to it and th- really this has been a lot of fun it's uh it's not often that uh i think we all take the time to reminisce like we should but it has been fun to think back on so thank you well fun for us certainly and we appreciate you uh, joining in on our fun the great randy bush this is the twins clubhouse we appreciate all of you joining us here on the twins clubhouse where you did it Uh, across the Treasure Island Baseball Network or wherever you find your Twins podcast. We'll be back again next week to once again throw open the doors to the Twins Clubhouse right here on your home for Twins Baseball. This has been a presentation of the Treasure Island Baseball Network.